Weather Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. I'm Sarah Callanan. And for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk more about Dacamba regulation issues. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. The Indiana Environmental Reporter wrote that a diverse panel of climate activists agreed bold action and bilateral collaboration are necessary as the United States takes its first steps in reclaiming climate change leadership amid the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has highlighted the severity of the climate change crisis, said representatives from three climate activist organizations during the virtual America's Role in the World conference held by Indiana University's Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies on December 1st and 2nd. They agreed the Biden administration should take more ambitious action with regards to the fossil fuel industry, the root of the climate change problem, to avoid a climate catastrophe, but differed on what steps to take next. Quote, I think that there is a greater understanding of how dire this issue is, and we've all gotten a little taste this year of what it looks like to experience a full-scale societal existential emergency, end quote, said Katie Eder, co-founder and executive director of Future Coalition. Quote, I think as a society, we need to look around, and it's not just about the government. It's about every bad actor who's continuing to enable the fossil fuel industry and calling them out for what they are, as villains of this story that are funding and continuing to enable the destruction of our future, end quote. Eater discussed the future of climate activism during the Biden administration and beyond, with co-panelists Catherine Coleman-Flowers, founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and Kira O'Brien, founding president of Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends. The discussion was moderated by Janet McCabe, professor of practice at the IU McKinney School of Law and director of the IU Environmental Resilience Institute. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is revising a rule that limits ozone air pollution from upwind states, including Indiana, that contribute to air pollution problems in downwind states on the East Coast. The proposed revised cross-state air pollution update would further limit ozone and ozone precursor emissions from power plants in Indiana and 11 other states to prevent the pollution from being carried downwind to other states, making them unable to meet the 2008 National Ambient Air Quality Standard for Ozone. Ground-level ozone, also known as smog, is one of six criteria pollutants directly regulated by the Clean Air Act, 
Various administrations have modified the standards, making them stricter over time. The gas is created when nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds emitted by cars, power plants, and other industrial sources mix with radiation from sunlight. Breathing ozone can trigger a series of health problems like chest pain, throat irritation, airway inflammation, reduced lung function, and lung tissue damage. It can also worsen other health issues like bronchitis, emphysema, and asthma. The standard set in 2008, which the revised rule targets, limits ozone concentrations to 75 parts per billion. The proposed plan would limit the state of Indiana's nitrous oxide emissions budget to 12,500 tons in 2021 and would require reductions to fall to 9,500 tons in 2024. The budgets are not strict as states will be allowed to emit up to 21% more than their budgets to account for ozone season variability. Quote, Against the backdrop of four years of pro-polluter giveaways, this is a partial step forward and it stands out. Unfortunately, this proposal still allows large interstate contributions to unhealthy ozone levels to continue, end quote, said Earth Justice Staff Attorney Neil Gormley. Quote, remember that we're talking here about continuing violations of the health standard adopted in 2008. Allowing this pollution to continue 12 years later and beyond is completely unacceptable. There's no justification for EPA's passivity, end quote. The prestigious medical journal, The Lancet, recently published a comprehensive report on how climate change is affecting people's health around the world today. Increasing heat is a major culprit, Heat-related deaths among older adults increased by almost 54% between 2000 and 2018. According to The Verge, quote, The report offers proof that climate change is actively endangering lives now. Healthcare providers already see themselves as treating a climate crisis, end quote. Heat waves aren't the only threat. Other natural disasters are killing people and taxing healthcare systems around the world. The number of heat-related deaths worldwide in 2018 was 296,000 among people over age 65, who are the most vulnerable group. In the U.S., heat-related deaths have almost doubled for people over 65 over the past 20 years, with a record-setting 19,000 deaths in 2018. Wildfires are another threat. Residents of the U.S. experience one of the largest increases in risk, with a 19% increase in daily exposures to wildfires. The result is that increasing numbers of people are inhaling more soot and other pollution. The U.S. Senate is considering a new pro-nuclear bill, the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act of 2020, and then the House of Representatives will take it up. The thrust of the bill is to resurrect a dying, obsolete, and destructive technology that would spur more uranium mining in this country, give away billions of dollars to the nuclear industry, and incentivize nuclear energy at the expense of renewables. Specifically, the bill would expand uranium mining through the creation of a domestic uranium reserve. It would do nothing to require 
federal agencies to mitigate the well-established environmental damage from uranium mining and milling practices, nor would it mandate prompt and comprehensive reclamation and cleanup of mines and other nuclear facilities. The bill would also create a 10-year subsidy for about half of the nation's nuclear reactors. The subsidy would overtake investment in renewable energy, which, unlike nuclear power, is a real solution to the climate crisis. Further, the bill would introduce harmful nuclear technologies, including reprocessing and producing more highly enriched uranium, both of which increase risks of nuclear weapons proliferation. Last, the bill would do nothing to regulate the nuclear industry in terms of climate change, earthquakes, and similar risks. According to the Indiana Environmental Reporter, A federal judge ruled that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration must complete an analysis of potential environmental consequences of genetically engineered salmon produced in Canada and raised in Indiana. U.S. District Judge Vince Cahabria found that the FDA did not comply with the National Environmental Policy Act or the Endangered Species Act when it approved the application of AquaBounty Technologies' AquaAdvantage salmon in 2015, the first time any government approved a commercially genetically engineered animal as food. Tahabra said the agency did not adequately assess the risk of harm from the genetically engineered salmon, nor sufficiently consider the effect the salmon would have on endangered fish species if the salmon escaped into the wild. The FDA must now complete an analysis on the environmental consequences if genetically engineered salmon were to escape from AquaBounty facilities. The ruling also allows AquaBounty's facilities in Prince Edward Island, Canada and Albany, Indiana to continue to operate despite the deficiencies in the FDA's approval. AquaBounty President and CEO Sylvia Wolf told the Indiana Environmental Reporter that the company was disappointed with some of the conclusions reached in the decision, but remained confident in the robust scientific studies that resulted in the FDA's approval. Quote, This case did not call into question FDA's approval regarding the health and safety of our Aqua Advantage salmon. The focus of this decision was on the potential environmental impacts and the judge confirmed the low threat to the environment of our salmon, end quote, Wolf said. We work with the FDA on next steps and continue to evaluate the legal decision. The Associated Press says that during its final weeks, the Trump administration is working to push through dozens of environmental rollbacks that would weaken century-old protections for migratory birds, expand Arctic drilling, and hamstring future regulation of public health threats. The pending changes, which benefit oil and gas and other industries, deepen the challenges for President-elect Joe Biden, who made restoring and advancing protections for the environment, climate, and public health a core piece of his campaign. Quote, we're going to see a real scorched earth effort here at the tail end of the administration, end quote, said Brian Rutledge, a vice president of the National Audubon Society. The proposed changes cap four years of unprecedented environmental deregulation by 
President Donald Trump, whose administration has worked to fundamentally change how federal agencies apply and enforce the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and other protections. Most of the changes are expected to sail through the approval process, which includes the White House releasing the final version and publication in the Federal Register. According to a report by the UN and colleagues, governments throughout the world are, quote, doubling down, end quote, on fossil fuels, even though sharp decreases in carbon emissions are necessary to alleviate the climate crisis. The report says that fossil fuel production must decline by 6% per year until 2030 to maintain global heating under 1.5 degrees Celsius, as determined by the Paris Accord to prevent, quote, severe climate disruption, end quote. Nations are giving 50% more COVID-19 recovery funding to fossil fuels than to clean energy. Eight countries produce 60% of the world's fossil fuels, Australia, Canada, China, India, Indonesia, Norway, Russia, and the U.S. The report suggests that a gradual decline in production can come about by halting fossil fuel subsidies and supporting communities as they seek new clean jobs. Niklas Hagelberg of the United Nations Environmental Program said, quote, Governments are injecting trillions of dollars into their economies. This is money borrowed from future generations. If we keep on investing in fossil fuels, we're going to give our children not only a planet in its worst state, but also wasted money, end quote. The Japanese government is getting ready to dump radioactive water contaminated with tritium and other radioactive material from the crippled Daiichi nuclear power plant in Fukushima, Japan, into the Pacific Ocean. After partial decontamination by an advanced liquid processing system, the contaminated water is stored in tanks at the nuclear site. Currently, there are over a thousand such tanks at the site. In 70% of the tanks, the amount of radioactive substances is 20,000 times the standard. Tritium is absorbed by people through food and has detrimental effect on cells and DNA. Tritium bioaccumulates in fish and then contaminates the food chain. Disposal of contaminated water into the ocean violates international law, according to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Opponents of the dumping plan say that the Japanese government and TEPCO, the company that operates the Daiichi plant, have chosen ocean dumping for disposal because it's the easiest and cheapest way to go. Contrary to TEPCO's claims, there is land on the power plant site that can be used to store the contaminated water. Another option is to use grease solidification, first implemented at the Savannah River site disposal facilities in Georgia, which solidifies highly tritium-contaminated water for burial. These solutions are expensive and TEPCO is ignoring them. The dumping plan is a betrayal of Japanese fisheries, which requested that contaminated water not be dumped into the ocean without the consent of fisheries and the Japanese people. In August 2015, TEPCO agreed to store the water in tanks on site rather than dump it into the ocean. It has gone back on that pledge. 
Japan's anti-nuclear organization, Jensuikin, along with residents of Fukushima, is organizing international opposition to prevent the ocean dumping. Earlier this year, more than 350 elephants mysteriously died in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. Individuals of all ages and both sexes were affected, with many walking in circles before dying suddenly, collapsing on their faces. The mass die-off in May and June was described as a conservation disaster. Three months later, most surviving elephants have fled. Last week, a plane flew over the Akavango Panhandle, an area in the northwest of the Delta where most of the deaths occurred, and eight elephants were spotted, where normally you would see hundreds, says Dr. Neil McCann, Director of Conservation at UK-based charity National Park Rescue. Quote, It is understandable. I'm sure you or I would flee if all our friends and relatives were dying, and that's what the elephants appear to have done. End quote. Elephants are now reported to have started dying in a similar way in neighboring Zimbabwe. So far, 22 have died, with numbers expected to rise. Dr. Roy Bengus, retired chief state veterinarian of the Kruger National Park, says testing fresh carcasses in Zimbabwe could be an opportunity to understand what happened in Botswana. There have been many competing theories about the cause of the deaths in Botswana. Human-elephant conflicts are common in the Akavango Delta, an agricultural area home to 15,000 elephants and 16,000 people, but poisoning or poaching are unlikely to be to blame. Cyanide was ruled out because no scavengers died and tusks were left intact. Pesticides and anthrax were tested for and also ruled out. After months of work, scientists have whittled the cause down to two leading theories. Neurotoxins in algal blooms or rodent virus known as EMC, encephalomyocarditis. Local sources estimate that 70% of elephants in Okavango and Botswana died near waterholes, many of which contain blue-green algal blooms. Toxins from algae were initially ruled out as a potential cause because elephants were the only species to die, with the exception of one horse. Now experts think elephants could be more vulnerable to algal bloom toxins because they spend so much time bathing and frolicking in water. Their long trunks also have a large number of olfactory receptors and they can drink hundreds of liters of water a day, potentially exposing them to more toxins than other species. Professor Christine Gosden from the University of Liverpool, who has previously studied the toxicology of chemical warfare, says she felt a responsibility to look into the mysterious deaths after reading the story in The Guardian. Her findings suggest they could be caused by a recently discovered bacterial toxin produced by algae called BMAA, beta-methyl-amino-L-alanine. She made the link after reading about the similarities between the behavior of disoriented whales and dolphins that became beached and died and tested positive for BMAA in their brain, and reports of elephants walking around in circles before collapsing. They are large mammals, and they're showing the same sort of behavior. They're clearly lost and disoriented, she says, describing this connection as a giant clue. BMAA has also been found in the brain tissue of people with dementia. Zebra, wildebeest, white rhinoceros, and impala have all died from ingesting toxic algae, 
But there is no literature about elephants dying from neurotoxins in algal blooms. This might be because pathologists and vets do not initially test for cyanobacteria, and once they decide to do so, it is often too late because the tissues have deteriorated or the algal blooms have gone. Rising temperatures and intensive farming methods are fueling an increase in algal blooms in rivers, lakes, reservoirs, and seas around the world. Elephants are naive to this potential threat, which makes them vulnerable. In conclusion, the cause of these deaths is still not defined, but perhaps it is yet another consequence of a changing climate. And now for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about dicamba regulation issues. The Office of the Indiana State Chemist will assess how state-specific restrictions on dicamba could affect the use of the herbicide in the state. The OISC's Pesticide Review Board voted to review the ramifications of declaring dicamba a highly volatile herbicide, a move that could allow the state to better regulate the use of the controversial chemical in Indiana. Dicamba has been associated with crop destruction caused by drifting of the chemical from the original application site. The decision comes after the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency approved five-year registrations of Monsanto company Bayer AG's Extendamax with Vapor Grip technology and BASF's Ingenia herbicide, and extended the registration for Syngenta's Tavium Plus Vapor Grip for use on dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans until 2025. The registrations come with new federal requirements for pesticide applicators, some of which the OISC says may not be the best fit for Indiana and may require state-specific restrictions. Declaring dicamba a highly volatile herbicide would give the state chemist authority to set state restrictions on the chemical that would differ from the federal registration. The registration allows the sale and use of the products as long as several control measures are followed, including the mandatory addition of a pH buffering agent to tanks when the products are used, mandatory downwind buffer areas where some listed species are located, the simplification of labels and use directions, and strict application deadlines for soybeans and cotton. The EPA set a universal June 30 cutoff date for dicamba application on soybeans and July 30 for cotton, deadlines that run counter to the OISC's need determinations for Indiana. This is OISC Pesticide Program Administrator David Scott. Realistically, if we were trying to normalize uh, dicamba applications and the resulting off-target movement incident with every other active ingredient, we probably, probably pick June 5th or June 10th as a date to make dicamba like everything else. But dicamba today is not like everything else because it will control some of those weeds that the other herbicides won't. So that's that's part of the that's part of the calculation. But uh, but but our opinion is June twentieth was was helpful as a cutoff date, and we would recommend it again. The OISC, which regulates agricultural laws involving pesticides, fertilizers, animal feed, and seeds in the state, mostly depends on federal mandates to regulate dicamba and other pesticides. But within the last year and a half, the OISC began to set its own restrictions to address dicamba issues. When dicamba was introduced for soybeans, Indiana had no specific state restrictions or requirements until 2018, when the state mandated training for applicators. That mandate was removed in 2019. To address a growing number of drift complaints in the state, the OISC in late 2019 set an application deadline of June 20 for the 2020 growing season. The new deadline of June 30 could negatively affect farmers in the state. 
without a doubt, there is benefit to the use of these products because there are weeds you can't control without them. We think the cost starts getting a little unacceptably high after June 20. The OIC investigates complaints about drift and other situations involving pesticides. Since 2017, dicamba products have been the subject of most of the OISE's drift investigations. The OIC's June 20 deadline reduced the number of dicamba complaints by more than 55% in a single year. The OIC found that the June 20 deadline for dicamba application reduced 66% of the year's dicamba complaints. A June 30 cutoff date reduced only 52% of incidents. Scott said the EPA made its registration decision without input from the state of Indiana, despite states offering to comment on label language and restrictions. One solution does not fit every geographic location, and I think this is an example of that. We suggested options of uh, how they might address that. They elected to not take our advice, and they picked a date and made it universal, and it was June 30th. The OISC will review what could happen if dicamba is declared a highly volatile herbicide. The findings will be presented at the next Pesticide Review Board meeting in mid-February. And for Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Drive to Charlestown State Park on Friday, December 11th for a Devil's Backbone guided hike from 2 to 4 p.m. Devil's Backbone is normally a restricted area. To visit the limestone outcropping for this two-hour-long, three-mile rugged hike, you must pre-register. Go to the DNRIND website to register. The third annual Glow-in-the-Dark Night hike at Spring Mill State Park is scheduled for Saturday, December 12th from 6.30 to 7.15 p.m. Start a new tradition with your family. Join the naturalist for a fun one-mile hike on Trail 7 that will be lit up with battery-operated candles for the night. Learn about the creatures of the night and their winter survival skills. Meet at the Tulip Poplar Shelter. Masks are required. A Friendship Cemetery Tour will take place at Monroe Lake on Monday, December 14th from 1.30 to 2.45 p.m. Meet at the Kent Road and State Road 46 intersection to caravan to the cemetery location. Learn how the residents of the Salt Creek Valley shaped the history of the area. Sign up at eventbrite.com e slash friendship cemetery tour tickets dash one two six seven four one zero four zero eight six five to participate. You can also go to the Indiana DNR website to sign up. Celebrate the winter solstice at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, December 20th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Meet Tony at the Twin Caves parking lot for a long 2.5-mile walk on the shortest day of the year on Trail 3, which is partially rugged. So dress accordingly and wear a mask. Learn how to identify trees in the winter at a Winter Tree ID workshop on Sunday, December 20th at 2 p.m. at McCormick's Creek State Park. You will receive guidelines to help you identify the trees around you. The program will be held in the Nature Center's program room, so you must wear a mask at all times. And that wraps up our show for this week. 
Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.